born, I was a very little baby. And as I was a small child, I was a very small child. And when I was about 11, 12, 13, I was a very small teenager. And one day, my mom took me to the doctors, thinking, hold on, he is a bit little. We're from a little family, but Kyrion is especially little. And the doctor looked at me and said, he's absolutely fine. But I don't think you'd expect him to grow much more than five foot. Anyway, a couple of years later, I had a bit of a growth spurt. And I now stand a resplendent five foot seven, one inch taller than our new prime minister. And I want to say to that particular doctor, I've got a very good friend of mine actually, there you go, I can do it. But when I was that age, especially about 13, I hated being little. And I'd say to my mother, ma'am, I hate it that I'm so little. And she would say to me that classic phrase that you all know when you all love, good things come in small packages. Did it bring me any comfort? Absolutely not, because I would look at the other boys who were normal size and big and all the rest of it, and they were the ones who had the girls around them, and they were the ones who were really good at all kinds of sport, and I didn't have any of that going for me. But that phrase, good things come in small packages, was particularly applicable, and it is applicable to our Bible reading today. We've been on this journey over these last three weeks through the book of Nehemiah. And I think it's fair to say we have had some outstanding Bible readings as we've gone along. And we've had some incredibly long Bible readings as well. We have had lists of names upon names and upon names. And if you want to carry on reading the rest of Nehemiah chapter 11, that's exactly what you're going to get more of. And if you want to go home and do that, you are absolutely welcome to. It is incredible information. But our reading today is just two verses. And it's very easy to dismiss two verses until we remember that old adage of my mom, good things come in small packages. Every verse of scripture is precious Every verse of the Bible contains the word of God. It is God-breathed. And this particular passage of just two verses is no different. Though it is small, there is so much we can learn from it. And though it is small, there is so much that challenges us. In the context of where we've been reading so far, the people of Israel have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They have prayed over the walls. They have remembered why Jerusalem is so important. They have heard the law read aloud again. They've had a party about it to celebrate these walls being rebuilt. They have dedicated themselves and the walls to God. And now a very practical purpose comes into play. And that is repopulating the city. Jerusalem had all been emptied a few generations before when the people of Israel were taken into exile. Now it was new built. Now it was rebuilt. This was the Milton Keynes of the old world. 
And all it needed was a few residents to go and live in there. But there appears to be a bit of a problem in all of that. No one, if we read the subtext of these verses, actually wanted to go and live in Jerusalem. No one wanted to go there. They've rebuilt this magnificent city. They've rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt everything that is holy about there. But no one really wanted to go and live there. There were a few volunteers who wanted to go there, who we read in verse 2 are commended for their actions for volunteering for it. But they can't get anyone really to want to go there. And so bad was the case that they had to basically cast lots to get people to go there. And every one in ten people of the people in the nation of Israel were called upon to go and live in the city. They were called to live in Jerusalem. Now we may well wonder why it was in the first place that nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem. And I guess there could be a million reasons for that. Take the whole concept of city living to begin with. Jerusalem was and was meant to be a very busy city. Not everybody likes living in a city. I will tell you now, you can pay me enough money to want to go and work and minister in a city like London or even Cardiff or perhaps even Swansea. I am not that kind of person. And maybe the people of Israel are in that same category. They are very happy living in the suburbs, happy tending their land to where they were, happy with their lot in life and settled where they were. Maybe there was an issue with the city of Jerusalem itself. After all, there was a reason why they had to rebuild it, and that was because it had been knocked down. And it wasn't knocked down by accident. It was knocked down by soldiers wanting to do some damage a few generations before. To live in Jerusalem was really to live on the front line. In the ancient world, when people were more temperamental, shall we say, it was quite likely that you'll get caught up in a war somewhere along the line. It's quite likely a king of some kind will want to invade you. And it's quite likely that at some point, someone will try to take you off to be slaves in exile to a foreign land. From that point of view, Jerusalem was not an attractive offer. It was much safer to live in the villages, to live in the suburbs and the outside places. So they did indeed have to have a bit of a lottery to try and get people to there. And sure enough, as we read, people respected that lottery and went to live in Jerusalem. But the very fact that they had to do it was shocking. And it's shocking because Jerusalem wasn't just a city like any other city. It wasn't the Cardiff of Israel. It wasn't the London or New York of the ancient world. This wasn't style over something else. Jerusalem was the spiritual capital of the land. Jerusalem was more than a city. Jerusalem was intertwined with God himself. Jerusalem was given another name, Zion. 
There is still now the physical Mount Zion, which is part of Jerusalem. But Zion meant the city of Jerusalem. And more than that, it meant the resting place, the dwelling place, the kingdom, if you will, of God. In Jerusalem was the temple. And in the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the resting place of God on earth. Jerusalem was the spiritual capital of the whole world in many ways. I guess you could say it still is today. But to not want to be in Jerusalem was to not want to be on Zion. And to not want to be on Zion was to not want to be walking as closely as you could do with God. Don't get me wrong. You could be a very good Jew living in one of the many towns outside of Jerusalem. You could be faithful. You could be good. You could follow the law. But to have the opportunity to live in Zion itself, that was a real sign of how much of a follower you wanted to be. And there were people who wanted to do it, as we saw the volunteers. But they still needed one in ten people to want to make that step, to want to be in Zion, to want to be I guess you could say, full-on followers, completely sold out for the cause, completely sold out for the kingdom of God. Perhaps we could put it into a word that we might understand a little bit more, to be disciples. Because there is something of a parallel between what has happened in this reading and what spirituality is like in the world that we live in today. A huge amount of people say that they believe in God. A huge amount of people say that they might even identify with Jesus. A huge amount of people might even go as well to call themselves Christian. But if we were to break down the statistics on what Christianity was like in Wales or the UK or Western Europe or North America, Words and actions don't always meet. And in fact, you are looking more like one in ten of those people who are willing to say, yes, I am a full-on believer. Yes, this is central to who I am. Yes, I am sold out for the Lord. Yes, I am a follower of him. And yes, I am a true disciple of Christ. So many people say they believe but far less people want it to impact on their lives. So many of us want the benefits to say, I believe in God and God looks after me, but far less of us want to make the sacrifice to go further with it. So many people say they believe in God, but not that many people want to live in Zion. And that, you could say, is a true of us today, as it was for those Jews at this time, for all that had happened, for all of God's faithfulness to them, they still didn't want to make that extra leap, that extra step of faith, that extra thing to say, yes, I want to be fully in this. I want it all. I want to be all with God and God in me. 
We aren't called to be believers, believe it or not. We're not called to acknowledge that Jesus is a good bloke, believe it or not, though he clearly is. We are called to be disciples. The last words of Matthew's gospel and Jesus' parting words to his disciples were, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, go out and make believers in all nations. He didn't say, go out and make good people in all nations. He said, go and make disciples. And it is disciples that we are called to be. Now, when it comes to the Bible, we hear the word disciple a lot. And though the word disciple has kind of been linked with Jesus as time has gone on, in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. Other people had their disciples as well. John the Baptist, for example, had disciples, some of whom followed Jesus. Other teachers of the time had their disciples. Many rabbis had their disciples. The priests had their disciples, and good holy people had their disciples as well. In the ancient world, a disciple was a very individual kind of person. Perhaps the best thing that we can compare them to in our modern world was a student. They were students, and the people who they were following were the masters. But there was a bit more to it than that. They weren't just students and saying, let's have our prearranged lessons and lectures and then go about our business and come back this time next week. These were people who were dedicated, completely and utterly dedicated to the master's teaching. They would follow the master wherever the master went. When the master slept, they would wait for the master to wake up. When the master did something, they wanted to learn from the master. They wanted to be with the master always. They wanted to learn from the master, and they wanted to imitate the master. They wanted to get what the master got, in some ways, like an apprentice does. They wanted to have it all. Now, we have in this room some incredible academics. We have in this room some incredible lecturers. We've had Dr. Pete at the front already. And we've also got quite a lot of students. I'm going to say now, it is not acceptable to camp outside Pete's door every night waiting for him to throw away nuggets of information to you. That isn't kind of applicable. But it is applicable for the Lord. And it is applicable for what we want to do while learning from the Lord, while learning from Christ. To have that desire to learn from Him, to want to be with Him always, so that He completely engulfs all of our life and He completely directs our life. He completely is in every bit of our life, in our work, in our leisure, in our sleeping, in our resting. He is our all. That really is what it means to be a disciple, to acknowledge that Jesus is our all. And when we look at the New Testament, certainly, we can see very clear examples of people who are like that. The followers of Jesus at the time. Look at Peter. The guy was completely intense 
on this desire to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus. The other disciples the same. But not everyone was like that. So many people would come on to Jesus and say, can I be your follower? And very often Jesus would say, yep, if you are willing to do this. And they weren't willing to do it. Think of the story, if you will, of the rich young man, the man who wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus said, you can follow me if you give up your wealth. But he didn't want to give up his wealth. He didn't want to be the disciple. He didn't want to be the sacrifice. He didn't want to make the sacrifice for the Lord. If he was around at the time of Nehemiah, he would not want to live in Jerusalem. We are called to be more like Peter, to be like John, than we are the rich young man. And it's so funny, isn't it? When you look at Jesus and you look about how he went about his business, he almost seems to persuade people not to be his disciples. Then he does say, come and follow me. There are so many incidents where he says to people, do this, do this, and makes life tricky for people. And he wasn't just being mean. Sometimes you can look at Jesus and say to the rich young man and say, oh, come on, let him have his cash, will you? Or see the person who wanted to bury their own father and say, oh, come on, have a heart. Let him bury his dad, will you? But Jesus knew something. And that was being a disciple came at a cost. Being a follower of him comes at a cost. And that is the challenge to us as well. Being a follower of Christ comes at a cost for us. To be a follower of Christ is to be like living in Zion in as much as it puts us on the front line. It puts us on the front line of attacks that come our way. It puts us on the front line of people thinking we're thick, people thinking we're stupid, people laughing at us, and perhaps even worse. Look at those disciples. Look at Peter. Look at Paul. Look at their deaths. They suffered for the sake of the gospel and they desire to follow Jesus. The cost for them was enormous. The cost for them came for their lives, but it also came for the style of life that they wanted to live. It came at the cost of wealth. It came at the cost of respectability. It came at the cost of everything. They desired to follow Jesus despite what it might cost them. They desired to follow Jesus even though it was hard. And we can generally ask the question, why? Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody truly want to be a disciple? Why would somebody want to put themselves on the front line? Why would somebody volunteer to live in Zion like they did in that reading? Why would somebody put themselves out there to do it? And I'll tell you for why. Because it's freaking awesome. Following Jesus is the greatest thing that there is. What did the likes of Peter see? They saw Jesus heal people. What did they see? They saw Jesus speak to thousands upon thousands of people. What did they see? They saw people forgiven. What did they see? They saw lives transformed. 
What did they see? They saw demons cast out. They had the most exciting lives they were because they walked with Jesus. And the walk with Jesus is the most exciting life any of us can have. Is it unpredictable? Yes. Is it always fulfilling by the world's standards? No. But is it worth it? Absolutely it's worth it. Is it worth it? It is worth it because God makes it worth it. We aren't just following some good bloke. We aren't just following some good teacher. We are following the King of Kings. We are following the Lord of Lords. We are following the one through whom all things were created and the one through whom all things were created. We are following the one who has saved us from our sins. We are following the one who has given us the gift of eternal life. The one who did it all and called us by name. The one who did it all and calls us friend. The one who did it all and says to us, come and follow me and be part of what I'm doing. The one who says, you are loved. You are special. You are worth it. You are forgiven. You are able. You are gifted. The one who gives us the power of his Holy Spirit. The one who is here now. The one who we have the option to worship and adore. It is so easy to take the other option and say, I don't want it all. I want to live my life and acknowledge who Jesus is. And that's a choice for each of us to make ourselves. But the choice of being a true follower, the choice of being a true disciple, is perhaps the greatest one that we can make. And it's the one that we make knowing that it's the one the world leads. Because the world needs to know the life-changing power that comes through Jesus. The world needs to know the life-changing power that comes through being part of his kingdom. The world needs to know the awesome power that he is. And the world needs to acknowledge him in everything, not just in part of our life, not just when we're in danger, not just when we're worried or anxious, not just when we're struggling with one thing, not for one day of the week, but for every day, for every minute of the day, for everything we do, and to impact on everything that we do, on our work, on our leisure, on our finances, on our economy, on our politics, on everything that we've got, on our healthcare, on our learning, on our academics, and our studying, on everything, to allow the Lord to impact on it all, to be followers of him. Today we have a choice. We can be one of the ten and the volunteers who said, yes, I will go to Zion. I will go to the kingdom of God and be part of what's going on. Or we can be like the others who said, no, that's not for me. I'll go as far as I can go. A choice that is open to us all. The question is, is how far do we want to go? That's the challenge for us today. That's the challenge for us individually. 
And that's the challenge for us as a church. How far do we want to go to serve the kingdom of God? How far are we willing to go to be in his kingdom? How far are we willing to go to serve him, to see him come, to see him grow? Let's just pray.